morning. Good morning. This is uh, <laughs> Liz in her kitchen, me and my study, and this is Dr. Stu's podcast number 195. Welcome. I'm a community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And joining me today is uh, my co-host back from busy being birthing. Uh, last week is Bliss Young, best co-host in the business. How are you doing this morning, Bliss? I'm feeling pretty good, actually. I'll talk more about that. Um, yeah, so uh, before we get to that, because I want to hear all about it, we're uh, happy to have you all join us for podcast number 195. And you can reach me at askdrstu at gmail.com. You can reach Bliss at bliss at birthingbliss.com. My website is birthinginstincts.com. Bliss's website is birthingbliss.com. You can find us on social media, at Instagram, at Birthing Bliss, and at Birthing Instincts. And now I'm also on uh, Rumble, uh, posting some videos, uh, new content. I've got two videos up so far. I see that some people have actually gone and looked at them, which is kind of exciting for me. I never had a YouTube channel, never really wanted a YouTube channel. Uh, but uh, some of the things I do now, uh, when I record an uh, interview or something, if they're video, I might as well put them up on my site as well. I would like to just uh, say that I was recorded about three or four weeks ago and was posted on Christmas Day uh, with Dr. Suzanne at Wellness for Life podcast. So there's a link to that on my Facebook page, the Dr. Stuart Fishbein Facebook page, and also on my Instagram. You can listen. It was a 20-minute interview. I think it's pretty good, uh, fast 20 minutes. It's about the difference between midwifery care and obstetric care, um, and she does a really fast good interview. So... Um, here we are. Hey, you you on that one. What's that? How come I wasn't on that one with you if it was about midwifery care? Because she called me and I was on my couch for 20 minutes. Oh, oh that's right. You told me about that one. Yeah. And um, so anyway, this morning I went for a hike. I, went, I can't call it a hike. I have to back off. I can't call it a hike. It was a walk because by definition, a, a hike sort of has to be to me in nature and there has to be some like hills or something. So this was in my residential area, but I went for a nice walk. and I listened to uh, Rebecca Decker's podcast number 117, Evidence-Based Birth, which I think, I uh, just want people to know that I'm not that much of a geek. I don't spend all my time birthing stuff. As a matter of fact, I don't spend a lot of time birthing stuff. Um, I've been watching a lot of the international junior hockey tournament uh, coming from uh, Edmonton. This week, so that that ties keeps me very busy. But it was really good. It was uh, it was about induction of labor, um, Pastor Dude, and she did a synopsis of a lot of the trials. Not so much the arrive trial, which she did in podcast number ten or eleven, I think, for her. But this was a she went over the sweepsis trial, the index trial, and some older meta analysis, and looked at the numbers. The problem, of course. And they point them out. There's so many flaws in these studies because you can't compare one to the other. And uh, the way the research is done, and they all, and, and some of them had the midwifery model of care, like the ones in Sweden and Europe, and their C-section rates were 11 or 12 percent. Uh, you're never going to see that uh, the equivalent in this country. So, but it's really good summary for those of you who listen who are being told by your practitioner that yeah, you're 40 weeks in two days. We think we should induce you. You've got some, there's some good information there that you can get. So I just want to put a shout out to Rebecca. Awesome. Okay. So Bliss, uh, tell us what's going on in your household. Well, my son Grant has a job outside of the house, um, which felt important to me. I actually really thought about it. Like, 
you know, him having to have a mask on all day and all of that, given where we're at. But, you know, he's going to be living on his own next summer. And so he needs to start working and understanding what that's like before he's completely out on his own. So he got Corona, he got the virus and, um, he came home, let's see, Thursday night, he was coughing. I had already gone to bed. It was Christmas, you know, that was Christmas Eve. And then, um, Christmas morning, as we were opening our presents, he was coughing. So, you know, he didn't have a fever. He was feeling kind of bleh, but nothing like serious. So I really did think that it was just a common cold. But because I'm out in the world with clients and needed to see clients the next day and do some postpartum visits, we took him to get a rapid test and it came back positive. Where, where did you go to get the rapid test? It was actually really shady. <laughs> oh. <laughs> because... The place up here, I ha- I think I sent you the little message. Uh, I saw something by Whole Foods that they were doing a rapid test on Ventura Boulevard. So I scheduled a visit and then they sent me a message saying that they didn't have enough appointments that day and could I do- go down to their office in Culver City. And so I said, sure. And they sent me a link to go and register for that. And all they had were the tests that were going to take longer. And so I called them back. I said, hey, we're really running a rapid test. And he said, um, we can send a nurse out for, I don't know, 300 bucks, or you can meet one of them for 150 because then you want to do the travel fee. And I was like, meet them where? And he was like, probably like in front of their house because they're, you know, celebrating the holidays. And I was like, okay. Part of me was like, mm, this is kind of weird. So I drove to the marina and the guy comes out. He was very lovely. He said, I'm really sorry. I know this is very casual. Like normally we're in the office. So that's okay. I'm a home birth midwife. We do stuff like this all the time. So it was basically in somebody's driveway. Um, But he was really lovely. And I actually offered to him. I said, hey, I have an office up in Sherman Oaks. If you ever need somebody to do tests up there, I'd be happy to. And he said, actually, we're expanding. So that would be cool, which would be awesome because then I'd have access to the rapid tests for my clients if we had somebody that we suspect, you know? And so And my clients. And your clients. So I'm going to follow up on that because I think that would be kind of cool. So, um, so my son, Jordan, my best friend, Marianne, who had been hanging out with us, and my friend, Michael, kind of my pod. Those are the people that, you know, we've been with during this whole thing. Um, we all got tested. Um, Jordan and I had to wait in line for two hours with our masks on through the drive through um, and just found out he's positive. Jordan's positive and I'm negative. So we've been in the house together. Jordan Grant's been isolated in the room and Jordan and I have been social distancing and, you know, really trying not to be close to each other at all and, you know, washing our hands and just kind of keeping things separate. Um, so it looks like I'll be moving out of my house today. I'll probably go to a hotel for a couple of days and then I'll repeat my test just to make sure I didn't get, you know, a false. Yeah. yeah, The problem with these tests is that there is a lot of false positives and false negatives. And so it's hard to know, you know, famously Elon Musk did, uh, did four tests in one day and he got two positives and two negatives in the same, in the same day. So, um, Yeah. yeah. Well, that's interesting. I hope that, you know, that uh, gets better. You're, you're giving him, um, you know, good nurturing care, chicken soup and uh, vitamin C and all that stuff, I, I imagine. 
I wanted to just go over what I'm taking. So I'm taking vitamin C. I'm taking zinc, although this one is really low dose. It's just what I had. So I have another one coming. I'm taking quinine. And I've been drinking a lot of tonic water. Um, the quinine, quinine is like a, is like a poor man's substitute for hydroxychloroquine, sort of. Right. That's how it works. I have that. And then um, I've been doing D3, which I take every day anyways. But um, when you're thinking about that you might be fighting something or have been exposed to something, you do 20,000 units for four days. So I did four days and now I'm going back to my normal dose of 5,000. Um, and then also my friend Desiree has a um, herbal line. So she brought us a, her company's Wild Wolf. It's awesome. And she has a cough suppressant uh, tea that we've been doing. Actually helped Grant feel better really quickly. And then we have a fire cider by her that we're doing every day too. So. Okay, good. Hopefully I, I, should just, I should just say, oh, go ahead, finish. I was say, hopefully we're all okay. Marianne is the one I'm most worried about because she just got through chemotherapy and has been a smoker for a long time. She's not smoking now, but you know, so. Well, she, you know, we, we talked, you and I talked a little bit about therapeutics and if she's interested in taking therapeutics, then, then there are local doctors willing to call those in for her. So. Of course, you know, the, they've gotten a bad rap because they get automatically associated with Trump, which is silly. It's just silly. But well, you know what's really silly about it is because they got a bad rap in, in European countries and South American countries. And what does that have to do with our president? Nothing. Yeah. So yeah, there's something there's something going on. I think it's more big pharma than anything else uh, because it's really cheap. Exactly. And it works. Um, I just tell you that. So just to make you feel better, I got my uh, uh, COVID test before Christmas in a parking lot as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 my office in Calabasas is right next to a pediatrician's office, Tanya, Tanya Altman. And she's been doing the tests in her office for kids. And I ran into them walking on the street one day in the neighborhood. I, I was going to lunch and they were walking back from lunch or something. And, and uh, we were talking about it and they said, they told me they do them in their eyes. I said, can I get one? She said, sure. Okay. So, you know, I, I paid 75 bucks for it, which was fine because, you know, my insurance doesn't cover pretty much anything. And um, uh, so they came down to the parking lot and did it to me in the parking lot. So Great, you gotta connect me. You gotta you gotta hook me up with your connection. Yeah, I don't perfect. think I think that they'll I think that she'll do it for anybody. I mean, she sends her tech down to the parking lot and uh, and uh, there's actually they got a space in the parking lot coned off in arrangement with the building because that's where they do probably they don't want the people coming in for testing into the building, so they do it out in the parking lot, which makes. Makes sense. Perfect sense, except if it's raining. Tell <laughs> you um, that I, since the last time, or tell our listeners, since the last time I had two beautiful, one of the reasons why I wasn't with you last week, two beautiful VBAC water births. Um, That's great. 20, 24 hours apart from each other. Um, so one of them was Ruby, who you did a repair on about a year ago. Wow. Wait a minute, I, I did a repair and she's a, oh, this was her second VBAC then. It's her second VBAC yeah, with me. Yeah, because I wouldn't have repaired her if she'd had a C-section. <laughs> um, and uh, so this time she got to have a really peaceful water birth. She never pushed Stu. I, I went to the other room to like, you know, hang out and wait for the, her sounds to change. And she said, baby's coming. And I hauled ass. She said, can I turn over? And I said, sure. She turned over. The head was out. She, she didn't ever push. 
And then her, the baby's head was out. I wanted to mention this to you because of a story you've told. The head was out for six minutes. Just gonna pause. Let me let me let me take my blood pressure really quick. Okay. <laughs> um, and then it was interesting because she said, I feel like the baby's going up. And I was like, okay, mm. give me a right. And so she pushed nothing. And so I looked at Hayes and I was like, I'm gonna help you a little. So I went, I went in and I kind of like, you know, just to see when she pushed, wasn't really moving. So I pulled a little bit more. And then the baby came easily. She didn't have to change positions or anything. Turns out biggest baby I've ever had, it was 10 pounds, six ounces. So it wasn't a shoulder dystocia, but I think it's what we call fat dystocia. Yeah, a body, they call it a body dystocia, right. Two and a half inches. So what you so as as the fourth and fifth minutes ticked by with the head just sitting there, were you at all getting nervous? I really wasn't nervous, but the dad told me later that he was. Seemed totally, I mean, I've had people on land before that it's taken that long. So, yeah. And from my training and what we know about water birth and babies is, you know, they don't breathe until they hit oxygen because they're living in water. So it's just a gentle transition. Um, the other one was a woman who had had a baby in the Ukraine 12 years ago very traumatic delivery her doctor actually hit her in labor and then when he did her repair he sewed her up so much so that she could only put a tampon in she had to have reconstructive surgery of her vagina to be able to have sex again then she came to the states and two and a half years ago she ended up having another traumatic delivery very different where they um I don't remember all of the details, but she ended up having a C-section and was very traumatized by that experience as well. So she, and it was a storm, stormy night on Christmas Eve, I guess, um, up in uh, Simi Valley. We, the power actually went out while she was pushing. Um, and there were little twinkle lights that are battery operated that were in the window. Thank goodness, because that was the only light that we had in the house. And I kind of had to think about it. I was like, okay, is there anything that I need that uses power? Like I'd never had that happen. So I just, the only thing was the um, eating pads. So yeah, yeah pads for the towels for the baby, yeah. but the room was warm enough. And so we kind of just continued on um, and beautiful baby. Beautiful so wait, baby. so wait, so this baby was born in the dark. In the dark. Without power on Christmas Eve. Yeah. With Jupiter and Saturn in conjunction. <laughs> And the wind, Sue, the wind was howling so loud. It was, un it was incredible. Did they name the baby Jesus? <laughs> no. Did, did three wise men come and knock at the door or three tax collectors, three something or other? No, because that's very, you know, I got a little goosebumps when you said that because the weather was howling. There was, you know, the, there was no heat. I mean, it was still warm, but yeah, but it just went out. But, but it was the Jupiter and Saturn thing which was maybe part of the star of Bethlehem, who knows? And it was Christmas Eve and wow. It was magical. Yeah. At one point, her, um, her bag of waters was crowning. You know how that can happen sometimes? Oh, right? sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
And when you when I shone the flashlight on it, you could see the water moving inside of the sack. And it looked, it literally looked like she was birthing the universe. It was the coolest image. I don't think we're, we were able to get a good photograph of it. But anyways, I lied. She didn't have a water birth. She had a birth on a birth stool. But it was still absolutely stunningly beautiful. And she holding her baby and speaking in Russian and like that, you know, oh, my baby, I did it, whatever she was saying. But it was like so universal, you know, I was like, it didn't matter what the words were, the passion of her being able to have this beautiful HVAC was really, couldn't have asked for a better Christmas present. Very sweet. And by the way, that's not a lie. <laughs> it's not a lie when you make a mistake. It's not a lie. That's, that's... Okay. It was a mistake. Right. All right. So I know you have a lot of letters that you. Well, write. you know, uh, um, we yeah, I want to get to the letters, but I just want to ask you: Did you end up getting able to do your stats yesterday, last night? I did. Yeah. Okay. So I want to make sure we save time for that because I think it's interesting. What we're going to do is, um, Liz and I are going to go over uh, the year in review and do our uh, 2020, you know, look at our 2020 numbers together. So um, I have a I have one letter that I wasn't planning to read it, but I I realized that the woman is 38 weeks. So I thought I'd better read this one. Um, this is from Morgan. And uh, she's on the 802 area code. I'm not sure where that's from. Is that Arizona? Where's 802? You know? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. Well, anyway, she says, I'm 39 years old and 38 weeks pregnant. And this was from uh, three days ago uh, with my second baby. My first kiddo came via non-emergency section after about 100 hours of on and off labor. She was a planned home birth, but we transferred after about 75 hours of what I now know was probably prodromal labor. I did not dilate past four centimeters, even after 25 hours on Pitocin. At that point, everyone just threw up their hands and said, we don't know. <laughs> she puts that in quotes, too. So it's pretty funny. Okay. Um, how, how pregnant was she at the time? How many weeks? Yeah. I have no idea. She doesn't say. Okay. 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 But she says, on a side note, I did not like my midwife, and I was uncomfortable vocalizing at the time in my tiny apartment with neighbors close by. So I'll digress for a second from the letter. She's got a lot more to the letter. But that's important. Feeling safe, feeling like your cave is well-supported and that you can express yourself in any way you want and, and not be worried about what other people are thinking or, or whatever is very important for the success in labor. And that's one of the problems in the hospital setting when women are in rooms, even private rooms, where you can hear the hallway, you can hear people talking, uh, people are coming in and out. Um, think about when I was a resident and rotating through LA County, USC, we used to have four women in the laboring room divided by curtains, all laboring in the same room. So yeah. that was strange. Anyway, very important. It's come to my attention since then that I have MTHFR gene mutation, that's methotetrahydrofolate reductase deficiency for people who uh, don't know what MTHFR is, but you look it up. That most likely affected my labor last time, and that's probably true. Um, there's Possible. more and more data coming out about dysfunctional contraction patterns in labor uh, with people who are MTFHR. My, my daughter was also tongue-tied which is apparently related to MTHFR, and that's true, too. Midline, midline defects to folate deficiency. Um, I've been working with a nutritionist in SoCal who works specifically with VBAC moms who had a long, unsuccessful labor and thus a cesarean. 
for my other moms who've had the same thing that she's had. I wonder if it's our friend, Julie Miller, who works up in um, uh, Altadena, I think with uh, Shemin a lot. So uh, I don't know for sure. My midwife has been practicing for 44 years and is skilled in HBACs. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what skilled in HBACs means. I always like to say that HBAC women should not be treated any differently than women laboring for the first time or the third time. My question is about length of time you are typically comfortable supporting an HBAC mom in labor. I'm praying that the birth process kicks into gear this time and that everyone moves along at a reasonable rate and the baby comes out, but I know birth does, not, it does what it does. Are there any studies to suggest that there should be a laboring time limit for VBAC moms? No. There might be, but they have no value. My midwife mentioned feeling less comfortable if active labor lasts longer than 24 hours. Which is interesting to me if someone considers themselves to specialize in it and then has a limit. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that, I think it's because maybe there's an issue with not so much the midwife being concerned, but the midwife being concerned that if she takes a VBAC into the hospital as a transport after 48 or 60 hours or 62 hours and 12 minutes or whatever it is, that she's going to get looked at cross-eyed and get yelled at. So I'm not sure what her concern is, but I always, one of the things I talk about on the podcast all the time is the idea that all these deadlines and stuff always have such perfectly even numbers. You know, we have 24 hours of ruptured membranes or, you know, or, or an hour of, uh, or I mean, a one minute of delayed cord clamping or, you know, whatever the numbers we use, you know, we, we, you, know you, you only have a certain two hours of pushing or whatever. Why, why is it always a perfectly even number? Anytime you see a study or report that says, or a doctor that says we want to do this after a specific hour number of time, they're making it up. You should always know that they're making it up because nature doesn't work that way, right? Nature doesn't work on specifically perfect timing. Okay, she says, we have a backup hospital close by if needed and they're supposedly humane and very supportive of VBAC, but I'm not at all interested in transferring unless there's a true emergency. I've had one, uh, and she says, I've had one ultrasound in 37 weeks. I'm personally not a fan of ultrasound, but my midwife wanted to be sure my placenta location and get a good look at my scar. And I, and I do agree with your midwife, uh, Morgan, because you don't want to be at home with a situation which was, you didn't catch because you have a placenta accreta or some other problem like that. So it's, you know, I'm glad that she suggested that. I'm glad that you went along with that. She says the placenta is anterior, way up high, scar looks great, baby's head down. I, I, I eat very well and walk about 15 miles a week and I feel great. So I don't know, I don't know if there's a question here other than the time limit and uh, we both said no. The study. Um, this you have is to what do what I, I, is comfortable with. I hope she's listening. Um, she deserves the opportunity to make choices for herself. So she deserves an opportunity to be able to labor as long as she feels comfortable. Um, if there's no clinical indications that something is going wrong. So change in station, um, unexplained bleeding, um, uh, non-reassuring heart rate of the baby, um, pain in between contractions at her um, scar area. These are, these are reasons why it would make sense to, if she's, you know, wanting to be careful about 
a potential rupture is to um, go in and be checked in those situations, especially if her midwife is not comfortable. But based on just time, you know, it's my opinion and I'm not her provider, but I think that every woman deserves the opportunity to be able to labor as long as they want. I've had a couple of multiples this, this year that, you know, we always say, oh, the second labor is going to go fast. You know, it'll be way different. And I had two that had a very difficult dysfunctional labor patterns, very similar to their first one, ended up in the hospital um, because that's what she chose to do um, because there wasn't progress. And the other one decided to stay home and ended up having her baby. But it was um, a multi that took almost 40 hours. So we, you know, that was definitely outside of the range of normal. And when we talk about statistics and studies and all of that, it's an average. There's always going to be people, like you said, you know, nature doesn't work that way. And we know when we go to birth, they're all always different. There's always something that surprises us. So, you know, she deserves to have the opportunity to say, I gave it my best and now I'm willing to get a C-section rather than someone else deciding that for her. That's how I feel. I have nothing to add. That's yeah. why that's why I love working with you because you're, it's exactly right. Um, yeah. Wish you the luck on your on I, your. My 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 suspicion is that that the midwife is repeating sort of what the, what she feels like her community would accept rather than what's medically speaking appropriate. So you might Morgan, you might want to ask your midwife if that's the issue, and and then you guys can have a conversation about that. Agreed. I hope you've delivered. Um, maybe by the time you see this, but uh, thanks for thanks for writing. I wanted to get that one done because I know you're you're due. Now I've got some really um, interesting letters. Um, well, they're all they're all. I want your input, Bliss, on these. A couple of them came la- a week before. I mean, before last week's podcast, but you weren't on. So this one's uh, first one is how to. Uh, my my title is how to court an OB. She says, hi, Dr. Stu. Firstly, I want to say that I greatly appreciate the work that you do and the opinions you and Bliss share on the podcast. I'm a first-year midwifery student at Indie Birth, midwifery school. Okay, everybody knows Indie Birth. And I greatly appreciate the perspectives you bring to the table and the resources, cases you discuss. I consider it to be part of my studies. By the way, this is Megan. Um, and I think Megan might be the, uh, on, on listening right now, too. She, I'm trying to figure out how to... Just have your picture and my picture on the screen, but I can't quite do it. So, hi, Megan. <laughs> that being said, do you have any suggestions on how I could try to build good relationships with the local OBs? I feel that it's so important for all of us birth professionals to work as a team. Yes, it is. Breaking the silos, working as a team. And I refuse to let my student-level naivety hold me back from working toward that goal. Is there a tactic or two I might try to begin that bridge building? All right. Great letter. Great question. Bliss, what do you think? Well, I haven't, maybe I'm not the right person to ask because I haven't been extremely successful in this. Um, But I would say, you know, I am going to be moving to a new area and I will be in that same situation of trying to build bridges and meet new people. And I think one is, you know, always making sure that your um, professionalism and how you hold yourself in general when you go to the hospital or when you're approaching these people or what what's the how people are perceiving you in the community would be very important to how this doctor 
may potentially, you might not be able to do anything that could change their mind because it's just the overall um, perception that they would be held responsible. Um, but I definitely think that you could ask somebody to lunch, you could write them a letter, um, you could, you know, say that you're really wanting to create um, some synergy and support women in the best way possible and um, ask questions of them in terms of what, what would they feel comfortable with? What do they, what would be their limitations? Um, what, how do they feel about home birth? What do they know about it? You know, like just kind of be interested about what they, um, what they're already bringing to the table. So that would be kind of, if they're willing to sit down and have lunch with you. Um, I remember when we were with the sanctuary and we were courting some doctors, um, I didn't do such a good job back then yeah. because I'm a big mouth, you know, and, um, and I just, um, I don't want to just play nice and, and align myself with somebody who doesn't have the same values as I do. Um, so that's, that's difficult because I haven't, haven't been able to, I had a relationship with a backup doctor that was great. And then he got pressure from his, what do you call them? Partners. Yeah, that was that was funny. Your your segue, right? And we we think alike. I mean, my point was going to be, I was going to extend on what you were saying, is that if I was going to seek out some physician who might be considering to use as a backup or be friendly, I would try to find someone in solo practice initially, yeah. um, and I would try to find somebody who's young, because yeah. young guys generally in solo practice are hungry. They're looking to build their practice or women. I mean, when I say guys, I just mean people. Um, it's my Midwestern roots that talks like that. But um, because that's what, that's who I was. I was approached as a solo practitioner and I was like eager to do it because I was building a practice. When you approach a person who may be friendly, but as Bliss just said, in a large group, they're going to get squashed by their large group. So you're going to have a harder time doing that. Um, how you may also pick somebody who might be more favorable is is when you transport to the hospital, maybe strike up a conversation with some of the labor and delivery nurses and try to find out from them who the doctors might be that seem to treat their patients a little with a little more dignity and a little uh, more patience for their patients. Um, yeah, and see who the doctors are that might be more amenable to a, a model of care that's similar to ours. That's pretty much all I can think of. Uh, yeah, and I, it's a hard time to do it. We've got a few in LA. I mean, it's a huge town in LA. There's like 1,800 OBs. I think I got three or four that I can rely on on a regular basis. Um, I had a client who's in care right now who wanted to know who her doctor was, and so she approached a couple of the doctors that we know that back up midwives, and they both said to her, "They're only backing up two midwives." And they're both backing the same two midwives who have been in practice for a very, very long time. So, you know, those of us who haven't been in practice as long, it, it, it becomes more difficult to make those relationships. And that's, that's unfortunate, not only for us, but especially for the clients, because in the countries where midwifery is more integrated, you have better results. Yep. And so, you know, this is actually what would make it the safest care is being able to give these options to women and then having a safe and supportive transport. Um, so it's really unfortunate. 
and this is, and by the way, this is not a slam on positions. They're under a lot of pressure. And things like that. I even think about when I was in, I mean, I've moved offices now, but for a long, long time, I was in the same office with the same guys. Now, a lot of the guys my age have retired or moved on, but there's a couple people still in the office and they won't, they would never take my, my clients, even my own office sharing. We called it a, we were a part, we weren't partners. We called it a, a, an association because we, our practices were separate. And even they, even though I, you know, we had lunch every day, we hung out, stuff like that. We had dinners once or twice a, well, a quarter um, together socially. We'd get along great, but they would not take my clients. So it's I tried not to easy. stuff, and even though they like me and they send me doula stuff and placenta stuff, they they are not willing to back us. So sorry, man. <laughs> Okay, so along that same line, I have another letter from uh, Roe, who's also on. Isn't it really interesting that the two letters I was going to read first were from Megan and Roe, and they're both live with us now. Uh, Zoom is a difficult thing because people don't just pop up and do Zoom. So this, I feel bliss. This is more like what we used to do, and you and I were sitting in John's apartment in his studio, just talking back and forth with each other, and then you know it'll be posted and people can watch it. But now. Not only can they hear it, but they'll be able to video watch it on my Rumble channel because I'm. And, and they, um, if you join us, you can. Oh, she left. We put too much pressure on her. Um, <laughs> if you, <laughs> no, if you then you can ask questions too live. Right. Right. Okay. So here's um, Row writes. I mean, yeah, Row writes. Dear Dr. Stewart. Hi, Dr. Stewart. Hope you had a nice Hanukkah. You're doing well. I'm a local doula here in LA and I enjoy watching you in bliss when you're listening, you're on and listening to your podcast. I have an opportunity to give a 45 minute zoom lecture to brand new OBs about the role and benefit of a doula. Cool. I didn't want to pass up the opportunity since it's important to educate. It's so important and it's, yeah, you want to make the best of it. I would love to be able to talk to new OBs or to OB residents or even medical students. And I've only had the opportunity a few times. It's sort of, like they're not interested and you know and i'm and i'm not making any effort anymore either uh to try to get in i i got to speak to residents once at cedars and once at um, california hospital and it was great but um that's not going to happen very much anymore but to be honest i'm at a loss at how to start what to include and how to organize the presentation as an ob yourself i wanted to get your insight into what you think i should emphasize to these new ob's we're coming out of medical school with an interventionist and medicalized view of birth and not seeing the mother baby die at. What points should I ensure to include in my talk to educate these new residents? Any and all help or suggestions would be greatly appreciated. I thank you for the work you're doing for our community. Thanks, Ro. Do you have any thoughts on that before I go off on a tangent? Um, well, I, I definitely think that if you can take them outside of the normal perspective and, um, kind of pull back, which I think you and I do a lot when we talk about this subject. So the mammalian model that you refer to a lot, like, you know, just trying to go towards common sense rather than going directly towards, um, correcting what they are doing, trying to change their perspective and see it from a totally different point of view. Um, that would be one of the biggest ones that I would do would be talk about the mammalian model and how other mammals deliver and, and then talk about the cocktail of hormones that influence that and how 
fear and lights and being watched and all of the things that we do in the hospital cause a woman to actually have a dysfunctional labor, which causes us to have to interfere. Um, so I think that would be a big one. Yeah, I, I do too. I think, I think talking, you know, I, I wouldn't get too off on a tangent of talking about, you know, I mean, Sarah Buckley's point about being safe, uh, uh, alone and unobserved. No. Safe. I'm missing. Unwatched. Well, I, w- I would see that with alone. And I think alone would be the same as unobserved. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Yes. I'm, missing, I'm missing one of them. But anyway, talking about how mammals labor is what Bliss just said is, is really, really important because that they've never experienced that before. When I had the opportunity to talk to some residents at California hospital, I'll never forget when I, I did, I did a uh, PowerPoint presentation. And I did talk about mammalian birth and they never heard it before. I, I watched them and their jaws and the questions they asked, you know, well, aren't you worried about this? Or aren't you worried about this? And, you know, I even went to, I even got to the point where they said, do you still put a woman in stirrups to deliver? And they said, yes. Do you still wash off her bottom with iodine to deliver? And they go, yes. And I go, well, why do you do that? And they didn't have an answer. They just did it. So you want to, obviously you want to approach them, not in a way which is conflict. You know, there's no conflict there. Yeah. Want to enlighten them about the idea that, that most births, probably 85% or more births, do not need any intervention at all, all right, if you let them labor. But immobilizing a woman, starving a woman, interrupting a woman, all these things are dysfunctional, and they would never do them to their own pet in labor, to what they do to the woman when she comes to the hospital. So, you know, talking about that, talking about what you do, maybe bringing some tools of the trade that you use like your peanut or your rebozo or, or I don't know what else you guys use. Some of your, maybe your herb, you, a lot of doulas, right? They bring that little yellow. They're not supposed to use. Well, they're not supposed to. So that's the midwives that do that. Okay. never mind. Um, so they can't do anything medical, right? Yeah. Some hospitals don't even let them use aromatherapy, which is weird. But, but you should yeah. still you could still go in and discuss these things, and you could discuss a little bit of the evidence behind it, which of course I don't even know. You know some of it, but but I don't even know. But discuss some of the evidence about the things that you do. Discuss where doulas came from. You can you can there are papers you can actually do some uh, literature search. You'll find the papers where there's a significantly higher success rate in women who are having their first baby who have a doula than who don't, as far as not having a C-section. Yeah. There's data on that. I, you know, if you write me later, uh, Ro, if you can't find it, um, I'll find it someplace. I've got it someplace. Uh, I talk about it in one of my PowerPoint presentations, so I know I have the the, the reference someplace. So that's what I would do. Great. Okay. Yeah. We okay. Agree. Um, I don't know if you read uh, Megan's question, Bliss. Did you read it? No, I didn't. It says, uh, "What did you mean when you by saying you had a big mouth?" <laughs> um. Yeah, just kind of like questioning. I can't remember specifically. We had dinner with this particular doctor. Um, but I questioning why he would be willing to not stand up for something that he knew was true against the hospital administration. Kind of like just um, being willing to go with the flow, even if it wasn't in the woman's best interest. And that's me. You know, I I'm I am willing to say things and do things for what's right. And I don't know. And that's one of the things I respect about you, Dr. Stu, 
is that you are willing to do that as well. And that, and I don't think that that is something that is common these days. But yeah, I, mean, I guess, I guess as you get older, you get better at it when, you know, you, you can be kind of rough and brusque initially when you, when you think you're right. You know, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm dating myself by a movie called Broadcast News. But there was a movie with broad, about Broadcast News. You've heard me talk about it, I think, Liz. Um, Holly Hunter plays this uh, completely OCD television producer who's unbelievably good at what she does, but has, like, no personal life at all. And there's one scene where, you know, she's confronting the, the uh, head of the studio, the head of the network, about who should, who should um, – host a, 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 an emergent uh, Sunday morning newscast because of some problem that occurred. And they're arguing back and forth. And rather than, you know, do it in a way that might get her point across and convince him, she comes across really, really brusque and, and, and uh, you know, ready for a conflict. We're always ready for that sort of thing. And there's better ways to, there is better ways to do it. I mean, the thing is she's right, but even with, with you're right and you don't, package your message well, you don't get hurt. Yeah, someone can't hear you. Yeah, I definitely think I'm much better 10 years later than I used to be. <laughs> yeah, and you're welcome. Bro. Okay, so listen, we're running out of time. So I, I wanted to get, I mean, I got more letters, but we'll just save them for next week. Uh, okay. I wanted to talk about the uh, the year in review. Yeah, I, I want to just give a little, a little like preview for next week. Um, okay, talk about a Gloria LeMay article from Midwifery Today about pushing for first-time moms. And um, it talks very um, interestingly about how you can wait and not do a vaginal exam, even on a first-time mom, for some signs before you know that they are getting close. So we'll talk about that next week. Definitely. Yeah, I wanted wanted to talk about that too, but we were going to run out of time, I think. So... You did you um did you do your stats like yeah. look at them? so how many births did you have last year? Well, I had forty six clients. Okay, but only forty of them actually attempted labor. If that makes sense. So yeah, I, I don't know because I had I had sixty six clients and only. That's my fax machine. Never mind. 30, 40, and 40, only 40. So let's see. Um, so for only 40, uh, 40, um, no, 54 of them went into labor. So I had uh, 12 transports, transfers out of care prior to labor. Okay. I only, I only have, had four or six. No, I had three abortions one therapeutic and two spontaneous and then i had three people transfer before labor one for covid one for blood pressure and one for um previa okay and of the of the how many did you say went into labor 40 40 and of those how many delivered vaginally um it's funny. I didn't, I didn't put vaginally. I put how many, so I had three C-sections. So, okay, 30, so yeah. So you had a C-section rate of about 8%. It said 0.75. Is that what that is when I yeah. divided? Yeah. Great. Yeah. I thought it would be lower, but it's because I don't do very many numbers. Yeah. Three, you had three delivered and 37, 37 delivered and three didn't. Right. 
And I had, well, I break mine into categories because I had all, you know, I, I had uh, head down babies. I only had 12 that went into labor and I had 11 that delivered vaginally. So that was a 92% success rate. Right. Breach, I had 14 that went into labor. I had 20 breach, uh, yeah, I had 20 breach clients and, um, Oh, I'm looking at twins. I'm sorry. Yeah, and and um, fourteen went into labor, and eleven delivered vaginally. So that's seventy nine percent. But I, I will again quantify that by saying I didn't break it down into multips and primips. But every transport in labor that I had last year was a primip. Zero percent transport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in labor, zero percent were multips. So again, have- go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, my success rate with breaches and twins and multips is still 100% for breaches and 98 plus percent for twins. I've had one multip twin not be successful, and I've had zero multip breaches, which is, you know, and I'm starting to get up, I'm up, you know, to 40 or 50 breaches. So having, you know, I don't know how many of those are, are multips, though. The, the bulk are multips. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe I'm even over 50%, 50 breaches overall. I don't remember. I did. I should do that one day too. I should retally how many breaches we've done, how many twins we've done in the 10 years we've been doing home birthing. So, yeah. Anyway, breach, breach success rate was 79% overall. The twin success rate was amazing. I had 16 sets of twins that went into labor and 15 delivered gradually. That's awesome. So that's a 94% success rate. And then VBACs, which does include some of the breaches and twins, I had only four. Uh, that were VBACs and three um, delivered vaginally. I had eight prolax and one repeat C-section. Say it again. Eight tolax and one repeat C-section. So seven out of eight of your VBACs were successful. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and that's like yeah. 80, that's like 87%. 88. Yeah, it's at 88. My transport rate was 15% overall, um, 10% for my primeps and 5% for my multips, which is higher than I thought because um, usually it's less than 1%. But both of those multips had dysfunctional deliveries last time. One of them ended up having a repeat C-section and the other one had a vaginal delivery in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So again, you you know, you had a, a, I hate to use the term failed, but an unsuccessful VBAC rate of 12%. Right. Most hospitals have an unsuccessful VBAC rate over 50%. Yeah. So I think you've, you've said before the quote, you you know, the statistic you've said before is 85% of success to do it out of the hospital. And I was aligned with actually, that. Actually, prior to the, the, in previous years, it was up as high as 93%. Uh, mm-hmm. with a VBAC success rate. But again, our numbers, to be fair, don't reach uh, what we would call statistical significance. These are these yeah. are anecdotal uh, things. But, you, you know, the, I used to say the plural of, a, the plural of anecdote is not data because I heard that someplace and it made sense to me. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, wait a minute, that's actually not true. Anecdotes are data. It's just mm-hmm. not statistically significant data. Yeah. So, and all... Statistically significant data is made up of anecdotes. 
Because every individual case is an anecdote, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, I also did 10. Um, last year, I, I got called by midwives, including including you a couple times. Yeah. Vacuums. Um, so that didn't. I did not include that in my 66 clients into care. Okay. So actually, I had like 76 clients come into care last year, technically speaking, because 10 of them were vacuums. Actually, of the vacuums that were that were 10, one of them ended up being forceps uh, after the vacuum didn't work. Um, I think that was with graceful birth. And um, so, but I had 10, you know, that was 10 extra births there. So that's more, my, my normal year is around 50. So talking about, you know, we talk about the increase with coronavirus, maybe who knows what, uh, maybe it's because less and less choices for twins or breaches. I, I haven't really compared from year to year, but there certainly was an increase this year and it might've been coronavirus. It might've been, you know, that sort of thing. But I personally think it's more breaches and twins. I mean, of my, of my, of my sixties, of my, let's see, I'm sorry, 30, 40, of my 46 people that went into labor with my, not counting the 10 uh, vacuums, um, 30 of them were breaches or twins. So, so that's like seven, that's like uh, literally 65% of my births when in this, in, in the statistical realm, it should be about 6%. If you add, it does make sense for what you do <clears throat> because you know, people that don't have those, they could just have a midwife. So. Right. And okay. it's unfortunate because the, you know, if, because of the law, you know, so many people who would normally be getting their twins or breaches delivered vaginally are not, and they don't happen to live in Southern California, or they can't afford me, or they don't, they have never heard of me, or they don't know uh, that they have that option because most physicians don't even mention it to that option there. I, I do want to give a shout out to several physicians over the year who did tell their clients that, you know, I don't do breach second twin, but there are people in the community that do. Why don't you find somebody who does that is so ethical and so different than so many physicians who just say that, you know, nobody does it or it's dangerous or whatever that. Um, so those few physicians who do that, uh, you, you know, have my respect for that. Um, I also looked at my perineal outcomes because I thought it'd be, I thought it'd be interesting. I'll look at that. Go ahead and keep going. I'll read that. Okay. So um, I cut two episiotomies last year, which is probably about my usual rate. All right. So in, in uh, I guess, 56 vaginal, or 56 vaginal births or attempts at vaginal births. Actually, wait a minute. Uh, 22, 37, 40, 50. There were, there were 50 vaginal births and I cut two episiotomies. So that's 4%. That makes it really easy to do percentages. So, you know, I, in the past, it's actually been higher because when I've done vacuums and stuff, when I first started doing them in the community, I cut episiotomies because I thought, because that's the way I was trained, but you guys have untrained me or retrained me or re-educated me. I've gone to re-education camp and you've done a good job. Uh, I think we might have time for another re-education thing that I'd love to talk to you about. Um, but Megan asked if we ever record our intuitive thoughts in our statistics and no, we tell me more about what you, what kind of things you would like for us to record. 
what would we record in terms of intuitive thoughts? That would be great for you to let us know. I mean, my, my initial feeling when she says that is, is this client's never going to make it. Oh, I see. And if it's, it's, it's counter to that, but we talked about that and I don't do that. I really, really, really like, even if I, I would, never write it, I would never write it down, but in the back of your mind, you still do it. Yeah. Even if I have a thought, I let it go because I, I believe that she deserves um, an opportunity for me to be there with believing every ounce of my body and giving her every bit of chance to be successful. So I don't and allow that's hard to do, Bliss. That's a real good talent that you have because it's very hard to do that. I know that you're good. You're really good at that. You know, I remember one of our clients that you and I, took care of and I we had to come back a couple of times we gave her some IVs all that stuff I mean you really 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 um, supported her um, even when we probably knew a while before that that this wasn't going to go anywhere I, I see miracles man I have yeah. seen some miracles where I just am like I don't know how this woman's going to keep going and then she does and she has her baby that one that I told you had that was a multip and I checked her and she was exactly the same after like 12 hours and she had a fit. She screamed and cried and was so mad about it. And then she was like, okay, what are we going to do? And I was like, well, the only thing we could try is castor oil. That's a lot. And that was the first time I ever gave someone in labor castor oil like that, but she did it and she had her baby. It was amazing. So you know, miracles do happen. People can surprise you. Patience is amazing. Um, and yeah, the people that I've seen that have had providers just be like, you should just get a C-section. It's been a long time. It just, those are the people who are still struggling with that decision, you know, because they didn't get to make it on their own. And I think when you get to choose for yourself, then you can change the way that you feel about it looking back, you know? Yeah. Let me let me wrap before you get on just 10 more seconds. Let me just wrap up the, the perineum. I had two, yep. two fourth degrees. All right. Which both of them I repair on site. So I can repair those. All right. I had no third degrees. And then I had uh, um, 25 of, four, of about 45 of the uh, vaginal deliveries were intact. So again, yeah, I mean, it's when you let a woman labor and do her own thing and stretch and be in the water and stuff like that, you, you don't get the interventions or the episiotomies or the, or the really bad tears. I mean, it's not surprising that I've got that every now and then I get a fourth degree when I get called for all these vacuums and stuff like that. Um, and that happens sometimes. And sometimes I think it happens because we're, I'm reluctant to cut an episiotomy uh, because it's gotten such a bad, you know, uh, label. Uh, in our community is cutting episiotomies. But but I'll tell you, I did cut one recently and the repair was so easy. I was with our friend Debbie, mm-hmm. midwife Debbie, and I and I cut one um, because it was really, really, really tight. And the repair and and I think she would have had this big explosion. Um because the baby I think was 10 pounds. And doing a vacuum, you mean? Yeah, she called me to do a vacuum, right? Right. Uh okay, so you you had one more thing? No, it's okay. Next time. Oh, okay. All right. So anything else? on? Is that pretty much our statistics? Um, is that a busier year for you? Was, 40, uh, was 46 people a lot for you? Um, I mean, you've been doing it for what? Three, four years now? How many? Average. 
How many years you've been practicing? Um, this is my fourth year. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So do you do you do you limit yourself to try not to take more than three or four a month? Yes. Okay. Yes. Originally, I was like, oh, I'm comfortable with two, and then you know, then I felt like I was getting more inquiries, and so then it kind of increased and increased. I've done five or six in a month, and it's just too much. It's just too much. <laughs> yeah. One month I did. I think I did thirteen in one month in January. Yeah. I know some midwives who who take that many, you know, and I just think that for me personally, my my balance in life, um, taking care of myself and being able to really give them the best um, that I can, it's just impacted. So, yeah. good, good. so I just want to say I had this run from uh, July 15th to um, September 27th. And these are the deliveries that I had in this in this one. So July 15th, September. So it's a little over two months. Okay. Uh, breach, 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 breach. Die, die twins, die, die twins, mono die twins, breach, breach. And then in October, type one diabetes, mono die twins, die, 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 die twins. So that's your norm, right? Yeah, so in a three-month period of time, I must have done, like, I don't know, eight breaches and 12 sets of twins or something like that. I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. But it's hard for me to say no because there's so few choices. I, I know. I, and I so appreciate that you and are that, And that would, we haven't really had the conflict, which I'm always worried about because, you know, I'm all over Southern California, of having two people with twins or two people with a breach and twins or breaches laboring at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. How is that, you know, how is that possible that it hasn't happened? That's really hasn't happened. Well, it's, it's, you know, the universe is supporting. Yeah. What, um, so we are about to wrap up. Is there anything else? This is the last podcast that we're going to do in the year of 2020. Is there anything else that you would like to say beyond your statistics to kind of wrap up this year? Um, yeah, you know, I was listening to, do you know who Mike Rowe is? I don't think so. Mike Rowe is the guy that hosts a TV show called Dirty Jobs. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but, it, you know, he's sort of a modern day uh, handyman philosopher. All right. And I really, and I really like him. All right. He just, he's just a regular guy. He reminds me of Tim Allen on the show, uh, home improvement. Mm -hmm. Only he's more macho than Tim Allen. <laughs> he's got a great voice, but he, he has this thing that he's promoting, which goes to what we all talk about um, during this time of coronavirus and lockdowns and stuff like that. And he says that, you know, there's always this thing that people have said safety first. All right. And, and he gets into where it comes from. But he has a, uh, a campaign going on called Safety Third. Mm -hmm. OK, mm -hmm. so. Um, yeah, because I don't know where the slogan safety first came from. I, I really don't. And I, I don't really know that. But um, I just think, you know, I wrote a little note. I can't even read my own handwriting anymore. So, But I just 
I just think that we, we we've got to we've got to be rational about how we decide in our lives what's important and what's not important. And I really think that that this year has been a banner year for highlighting the the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, of of our society. And we need to know what really matters, and what you know the idea that we we should not gather with our family. Should, I mean, you, you have a limited number of people that really care about you. You know, we have a lot of followers, we have all that stuff, but you know what, if I broke my leg, the followers aren't going to be bringing me chicken soup. Okay. They're not going to be taking care of me. You've got a limited group of people that do that. We need to value those people and we need to not necessarily put safety first, but put living first. I'll just leave it at that. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. And I think that's one of those places where we really overlap and maybe it's because, you know, I am surviving most people's worst fear this year. You know, my daughter was murdered. And, um, I think that shifts how you look at things because I have to wake up every day and decide to live. And what kind of life is it for me? if I don't get to spend time with the people that I love, you know, um, I loved in the last podcast, I listened to you when I wasn't there. And you said, you know, what if this is your grandmother's last Christmas, she should get to decide. And I, I do agree with that. And I do, I do agree that we need to let people make their own decisions about how they live and, and the shaming right now that's happening with people who are choosing to, not live in fear. Um, and of course I don't, I want to protect people and I don't want to, you know, especially right now I can see that, you know, one of my friends is possibly infected. And so of course I worry about her, but at the same time, you know, I don't know that she would have not chosen to come and spend the holidays with us because she would have been alone. So, yeah. I mean, what's that? Yeah. I, I get it. But it's, I mean, yeah. yeah, you know, you have, you know how I feel about you. So. And if you broke your leg, we would come and bring you chicken soup. And you, you, you would, but uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, the people who came out of the woodwork for me and brought food and sent messages and, you know, people that I thought that person doesn't even like me and they, and they sent me the most lovely, thoughtful gift, you know? So we just don't know. Um, who is thinking about us and who, you know, who we make a difference for in their lives and who is going to show up. I, I realized it during this time, people that I thought would be there for me are not. And people that I didn't think would be there for me are. So, um, but 2020 has been <laughs> interesting to say the least. And I don't think that, you know, the ball's going to drop and 2021 is going to be like completely different. I think we're dealing with our society shifting. Um, but I do get really irked when people, and this is terrible. This is, I'm, I'm being honest with you guys. When people say, stay safe, I think. Yeah. In my house forever. Like, I'm not interested in that either. I'm just not. Uh, you know, I'm exactly. just Exactly. Exactly. That's, you know, when, when, when people say drive safe. It's like, oh no, okay. I'll just I'm, I'm going to drive recklessly. I mean, it's but it, it, it we we've, we've come, and that's what Mike Rowe talks about. Is that where did this all come from? Where 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 did you know? How did we ever build a Hoover Dam? How did we like put a man on the moon? How did we do all these things if it's safety first? You can't have safety first. 
All right. So anyway, we're, we're out of time. Uh, I would like to say, as I always say, that I appreciate that everybody has so many things going on in their life that to give an hour of their time to us uh, once a week, whether it's live, like uh, Megan and Ro did. Yay. Zoom, we're trying to figure out a better way to, you know, to promote this, but but we know that people watch us because we can tell by the numbers on the Dr. Stu podcast page and all that stuff that you watch us delayed and that's great or listen to us on your podcast app on Apple. But to give us an hour, we're very, very grateful for that. And so this has again been Dr. Stu's podcast and this is number 195. It's a year in review, a year, what a year it's been in review. And uh, we hope that you will write to us at askdrstu at gmail.com or bliss at bliss. Dot com and you can look us up on our websites which you already know what they are and you find us on Instagram at Adverling Bliss or Adverling Bliss and until next time uh, we will see you uh, in the new year Happy New Year to everybody New Year Bye Bye